0: in the midst of a substance use related public health crisis. It's been described as the gravest substance use related public health crisis in modern history.
1: That's Dr. Carol Hopkins, Chief Executive Officer of the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. She's our guest on this first episode of Minobemadzwin, a podcast brought to you by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. I'm your host, Sherry Huff, a former reporter and producer at CBC Radio, and a proud member of Lakawit, the home of the Lenape. Today, I work for Thunderbird, managing communications, and now hosting a podcast. Minobemadzwin means living the good life, in the language of the Anishinaabe. We chose that as a name for our podcast because it captures what we're really all hoping for, for ourselves and those we care about. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of our families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is the same as Thunderbirds, to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness, one that is grounded in culture, Indigenous ways of knowing, a connection to community, and above all, kindness and compassion. Today, we're absolutely thrilled to be kicking off this podcast series with our Chief Executive Officer, Dr. Carol Hopkins. Carol is also Lenape. She's from Yontili, from here, El Napawi-Lakawit. It's the Lenape Territory where we are recording today, where Thunderbird houses its head offices in southwestern Ontario. Carol has spent more than 20 years working in the field of First Nations addictions and mental health with a special focus on the use of traditional knowledge and healing. She holds both a Master of Social Work degree from the University of Toronto and a degree in Sacred Indigenous Knowledge, equivalent to a PhD in Western-based education systems. She's a First Nations representative to the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs, an officer of the Order of Canada, and the recipient of an Honorary Doctor of Laws from Western University. She's also someone many people turn to about Indigenous addictions and mental health issues. Carol joins us today to walk us through what many First Nations communities are dealing with today, the current opioid and methamphetamine crisis. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Sherry. Well, welcome to Mino Thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to be here with you today. So, Carol, walk us through what you're seeing. What's the current situation with opioids and methamphetamines in communities in Canada?
0: Well, specifically in First Nations communities and predominantly describing the situation in rural and remote First Nations communities, we're in the midst of a substance use-related public health crisis, and it's been described by our colleagues that work in addictions medicine as the gravest substance use related public health crisis in modern history. And that's because the rates of death and harms to individuals who use drugs, to families and communities are significant and the pandemic has only worsened the situation that we're seeing. So for example, in First Nations communities, again, rural and remote environments, there used to be a thought that the distance and the geographic location set up a natural safety barrier, but that's not the case today. First Nations communities are talking about the gangs that prey upon the community. So there's, there's drugs coming into the community, Those drugs are distributed through the community. There's recruitment of children to act as drug mules. There's stealing of our youth, of women, for sex trafficking, that sex trafficking, both male, female, other genders, Mm. and a lack of capacity in First Nations communities to be able to fully address the crisis that they're seeing. And when I talk about capacity, First Nations communities say that they are able to recruit qualified individuals to work in their community to support outreach, uh, to support harm reduction measures, but they're not able to retain them. And they're not able to retain their qualified workforce. And this we hear as well in treatment centers the National Native Alcohol and Drug Abuse Treatment Centers and the National Youth Solvent Abuse Treatment Centers are not able to retain their workforce, their qualified workforce, because they have inadequate funding that they can't keep up with wages that would be paid outside of First Nations community.
1: So there's a brain drain happening in our communities. People are yes. coming, getting trained, have the qualifications, but then they leave. It's good
0: training that First Nations organizations and communities offer. Uh, Working in a First Nations environment is complex, it's demanding, and sometimes it's overwhelming. And those conditions of the work environment, coupled with the lack of wages, is a prime reason that many of our workforce, they come, they get the training, they get the experience, and then they go elsewhere. Through the pandemic, though, We've heard across different professional groups that that environment of supporting First Nations communities through the pandemic isn't just about the addictions issue because nobody presents with a need for support that is only about substance use-related issues. It's a
1: host of other issues. So how are communities responding uh, or not responding to, to this if you know if their their hands are tied with you know a lack of funding what are you actually seeing First Nations communities are responding
0: both to people who use drugs but also to the needs of family and the whole community we see that stated in the honoring our strengths a renewed framework to address substance use it says that if we're going to make a difference in substance use and substance use related harms then We cannot just focus on the individual. We have to pay attention to the needs of the family and the community. And certainly in the context of opioids and methamphetamines, communities that are doing just that, planning for ways to support individuals who just use drugs, their families and their community as a whole do well. So here's an example. For communities that have embraced a harm reduction approach, that have community wellness as a priority, their focus is not on criminalization of people who use drugs, rather their focus is on healing and wellness. One elder said that there is no justice without healing and that healing is all about justice. And so it's that philosophy and worldview that's embedded um, in indigenous knowledge and so those communities have partnerships with clinicians, uh, long standing relationships with uh, addictions medicine clinicians. So, uh, physicians, family physicians, uh, public health physicians, and nurse practitioners who throughout the pandemic have continued to provide mobile support. They've traveled great distances to be in the communities. They've spent time talking with the community workforce, with the community government chief and council, and they're supporting those conversations to ensure that they're collaborating and that they're thinking about all the ways to ensure that people are not dying unnecessarily from opioids and methamphetamines. So premature, and. Un- Unnatural deaths is what I mean by unnecessarily because the harms of opioids and methamphetamines are preventable if we engage in a conversation rather than push it aside and criminalize people for the unresolved trauma and their use of opioids and methamphetamines to cope with life. Communities that have engaged in partnerships with those clinicians, physicians, nurse practitioners have had conversation throughout the community and also have engaged elders and cultural practitioners. So it's not one or the other. Medication is not the silver bullet, and there is no medication like opioid agonist therapy to deal with the withdrawals of methamphetamine. There are medications that can support some of the symptoms of the withdrawal, but there is no opioid agonist therapy to treat methamphetamines and stimulants.
1: So there's a real difference in in how communities that are making strides are approaching this whole issue. It's not just individually focused. It's not just criminalization. It's not focusing on the one person who may have an addiction who may be struggling with substance use it's like a whole community approach is that is that the main difference between those that are that are making progress and those that may are may still be struggling in terms of community response to this
0: yeah it is a whole of community approach and it's a whole of a community approach that brings conventional therapy like medication counseling alongside and aligns it with our own knowledge and cultural practice Um, Supporting community in using our cultural practice through land-based services, advice of elders and cultural practitioners, supporting people who use drugs in accessing our traditional medicines, our ceremonies, and living off the land. For example, people who are engaged in their recovery journey with opioids and methamphetamines do not have a desire to stop using all substances when they start that journey. And we can't make that a requirement for engaging them in their wellness. Rather, we need to support them in choices that are manageable day to day and help them to see the possibilities for their life, help to encourage them with a reconnection to their identity. We know from talking with First Nations communities that individuals who have a connection to their culture, who believe that their identity is important and critical for their personal wellness, and individuals who have a relationship with a mentor, somebody they can go to and talk to when they need to and get some advice and guidance. That's for individuals who are using drugs, but also their families. When those things are in place, they do well, and that's what our data shows us. When they don't have those relationships, and they have accumulated lots of complicated grief and loss, residential schools, when they've experienced suicide amongst their family and friends, attempted suicide or completed suicide, uh, the premature or natural death. Those are indicators that tell us those individuals are at high risk for harmful substance use. You know, we're talking about individuals with experience with residential school and almost every individual, 95% of First Nations people who participate in the First Nations opioid and methamphetamine survey indicate they have a history with residential school. And we know that there are high rates of suicide in First Nations community. We also know that there are communities that have higher rates of opioid and methamphetamine use. Those are all indicators where those communities are in greater need for support in addressing and preventing the harms of opioid and methamphetamine use. And so when communities invest in relationship and when health professionals invest in understanding the First Nations community environment, their history, and their culture, then you have a foundation for a good relationship that can support community-based healing and wellness.
1: So one of the things that that we have seen in the in the general media has been communities where they're struggling with a lot of these issues that you're speaking about. Communities declaring a state of emergency. So, you know, that that they may or may not get some additional supports. When When do you think that's the right or wrong decision for communities?
0: Communities declare a state of emergency when they have a situation in their community that demands a response beyond the capacity of the community. And I want to clarify that when we're talking about capacity, we're not talking about knowledge and skills. We're talking about numbers of people. We're talking about resources, And so First Nations communities who have declared a state of emergency are communities that don't have a partnership. There are no physicians, there are no nurse practitioners providing rapid access to addictions medicine. Now, rapid access to addictions medicine helps to stabilize people and can help them determine what other needs they have uh, for housing, For food security. Uh, We know that people who are in the depths of opioid methamphetamine use often do not have housing and don't have food. We know there's a shortage of housing in First Nations communities. And so when you're using drugs, we get numb. Society gets numb. And we just expect if you're using drugs, then it's your fault that you don't have housing. It's your fault that you don't have food to eat every single day. It's your fault that you don't have an income. And we get angry because people who are using drugs are committing crimes of survival. But if we turn that story around and we say, well, that community does not have the resources it needs to effectively address the issues They do not have harm reduction uh, measures um, supported by, again, the clinicians. When the community has not had support for understanding decolonization approaches, how to set aside the colonized thinking that says, our cultural knowledge, our practices, our cultural practices and Indigenous knowledge is not good evidence. That's not true. That's a racist way of thinking and a judgment of Indigenous knowledge and cultural practices. We have seen from First Nations communities that invest in culture-based practices. They're making a difference in in wellness, they're increasing the balance of hope, belonging, meaning, and purpose. People are finding their place of belonging. Remember earlier I said lack of relationships is an indicator for increased harm, harmful use of substances, not only for the individual, but will also have an impact on family and community where we do have positive relationships at the community level, it's the positive relationship with the clinicians, the physician or nurse practitioner. It's the positive relationships internally with the community elders, Mm -hmm. cultural practitioners, and leaders. When we have that relationship in place, there are positive outcomes for family and community. And so... When communities don't have capacity, that's exactly what we're talking about lack of capacity of those relationships. Along with those relationships come other resources and in investment in harm reduction measures. So, for example, there's an increase in needle use using drugs by injection. And when communities do not understand the harms related to injection drug use. We see harms at the community level there uh, people will use drugs in the bush in certain parts of the community that they're comfortable in where no nobody is going to bother them. They don't have to face the judgments of the community. But in that area, we'll see discarded needles mm-hmm. in cities. For example, parks along the riverbanks, along the waterways, cities are finding an enormous amount of discarded needles. That creates risk to the general public. But when you invest in having a community conversation and you know that needle use is present amongst people who use drugs in the community, then that's an indication that it's time to take action. How do we make the environment in the community safer so that when people who are using drugs with needles can safely discard those needles without causing harm to other people? That's at the community level. At the individual and family level, it's learning uh, how to have conversations. We don't always know how to open up those conversations and talk about the injection drug use. When we see needles, It's important to have a conversation, and the conversation is not one that is judging and shaming, but one that is focused on the health of everyone in the family and for the individual especially.
1: So having those needle exchanges or safe supply, those kinds of things, there's a place for that in our communities. There needs to be.
0: In addition to the conversations, you can't have Mm -hmm. those... um, Those resources in community, unless you have a conversation that opens up the dialogue in a community, brings their awareness to the significance and importance of having needle exchange programs where we're encouraging people to move from needle use uh, to another form of use. We're not telling them to stop using. We're just saying, can you use in a different... Consider using the drugs that you're using in a different way. These other methods, ingesting or smoking, snorting, those methods of drug use are less harmful than a needle in the vein. Thunderbird Wellness is a new app developed by the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation. It takes a cultural approach to support health and wellness for
1: First Nations. It's grounded in Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing, connecting with our inherent strengths to support a return to wellness,
0: to live a good life. Thunderbird Wellness has reliable information
1: about opiates, methamphetamines, cannabis, and other substances. The Thunderbird Wellness app is free and can be downloaded today on the App Store and Google Play. So what are you seeing in terms of support? What's needed, you know, at the community level, whether it's programs and services, at the provincial level, at the federal level, what kinds of supports are needed to move this issue forward and and give communities the support they need?
0: Oftentimes, people think it's the federal government that is solely responsible for the health of First Nations people, and that is absolutely not true. The federal government does not fund physicians and nurse practitioners in First Nations communities. We do have community nurses, but their scope of practice is very limited because of the funding and the insurance that um, but they that they have to abide by. And so outside of the federally funded nurses in First Nations communities, we need additional support. that one nurse is, not the primary healthcare person for the whole of community, but yet
1: that's the way they're perceived. I don't think a lot of people know that. You know, that they, they think a nurse is a nurse is a nurse and they should be able to do everything that, you know, you expect nurses to be able to do. But because of insurance reasons, you're saying they're limited in that scope. Our
0: community workforce, no matter what the profession is, is funded at the prevention level. And so the nurse... Nurses that we have in First Nations communities, they're funded for health promotion and prevention. They are not funded or licensed or insured to do intervention. So, for example, um, I cut my ankle right uh, when I fell off my bike this year, and right. the hospital said, Go to your community nurse to get the stitches removed when it's time. The nurse in our community is not insured to remove stitches. They're not insured to participate in treatment for opioids and methamphetamine. They certainly have knowledge, they can support education initiatives um, and referrals, but referral to who? Sending people outside of our communities when we have a high uh, population in our communities that are being affected by opioids and methamphetamines doesn't make any sense. So those community-based services are important. The provincial governments are funded through health transfer agreements. Provincial and territorial governments hold the responsibility for mental health. Now, mental health is often perceived as something separate and different from substance use and addictions or substance use-related harms. The title or the concept of mental health, includes all. It's both substance use as well as uh, mental wellness, mental illness. And that's the responsibility of provincial, territorial governments. And so those partnerships are necessary with local health authorities, with regional health authorities, and public health. So provincially funded public health services, we know, that, say, for example, naloxone is a life-saving measure. It is a medicine that can reverse and stop death uh, from opioid poisoning, taking too much opioids or mixing opioids and other drugs, um, or taking opioids and not really knowing the toxicity, not knowing what's been... Um, put into the opioid can cause death. It stops the breathing. Naloxone reverses um, the overdose. It can reverse the op- uh, the overdose, and it can help people regain their breath. We need oxygen to live, and so it's so critically important to have naloxone available in First Nations communities rural and remote communities to ensure that they have the best chance of survival uh, from the uh, overdose of opioids. But getting naloxone in First Nations communities is a challenge. And where there are public health units that distribute naloxone, there are those... um, Locations across the country where public health has refused service to First Nations communities. say, And one of their reasons is that they don't have enough funding to serve First Nations communities. Now, a provincially funded public health unit, a provincially funded mental health service, saying that they don't have enough funding to serve a First Nations community is a race-based mm-hmm decision that has nothing to do with funding, because in the health transfer payments to provinces from the federal government, they fund based on the population of the whole of the province. And so... That includes First Nations. That includes First Nations. Now, hopefully with Truth and Reconciliation, those kinds of race-based, and I'll say racist decisions... Mm -hmm. And we know that we're having a conversation in Canada right now around racism in the healthcare system. Refusal, refusing to serve First Nations communities is a racist decision. There's no reason why, except that we do not have the partnership. We don't have the relationship so that First Nations feel confident and having conversations with their local health authority, with the provincial health government, with public health units about community needs. First Nations communities do not always have the data that they need at the community level to help them tell their story with provincial public health health authorities or the provincial health government. And so Thunderbird is supporting First Nations communities in implementing the opioid and methamphetamine survey that helps to give a story It helps them to tell their story about the impacts about the types of drugs that are 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 being used and consumed by their population that tells a story about the impacts of those drugs on family and community and also helps us to understand what are their needs and how do we respond from both a clinical perspective and a cultural perspective?
1: So, that's something that people can do is participate in that survey to contribute to those numbers so that we can continue to press and, and push the provincial government to uphold its end of the bargain.
0: Absolutely. And not only do we go into a community and just take data and use that for whatever purposes. We provide a community-based report to the community, but we also provide support to First Nations communities through education and awareness. So we have a number of materials that we facilitate the delivery of to the community based on what their main concerns are. And if the community does have capacity and they just need the materials, we'll provide that to them. So PowerPoint presentations, booklets, flyers, any way the community identifies what will support them in raising awareness around the harms of drugs gets the community engaged in conversations around harm reduction measures. We provide educational material and resources to support that while we are promoting the implementation of the opioid and methamphetamine survey.
1: Right. So I know one of the the things you had mentioned is communities are dealing with this. Perhaps they're dealing with this individually as, as each community is dealing with it on their own. But are you seeing more communities pooling resources working together because there are many commonalities um, in dealing with first the systemic issues that you talked about but the individual issues people struggling with opioid methamphetamines are you seeing those kind of coming together of communities and regions to to, to deal with this issue
0: absolutely Canada just released some data that said BC Alberta and Ontario are provinces where there are the highest rates of opioid and methamphetamine use. And we also know that in First Nations, it's not just those provinces. And there are regions who are putting together regional strategies for First Nations around opioids and methamphetamines. They're examining who best to partner with, how to incorporate culture, how do you rate policies related to culture and cultural practitioners? How do we engage and facilitate the conversation between clinicians and culture-based practices and supporting an understanding of the context. How do we support their strategies? are looking at ways to support access to naloxone and training for frontline community workers. They're talking about their use of ceremony, about community-based harm reduction, needle exchange. We're just now entering a conversation on a safe supply of drugs and a safe supply of opioids specifically. What that means is that people who have chronic opioid methamphetamine use have not done well with opioid agonist therapy. Maybe they're an unhoused population and are not interested in withdrawal of opioids they're looking for a safe supply of drugs, and so the objective there is to stay alive. We know that, again, going back to residential school history and the complicated compounded traumas that First Nations people have in their lives, opioid agonist therapy is not going to address the complex compounded trauma, intergenerational trauma that First Nations people are dealing with and medicating with opioids and methamphetamines. And so the drug is one piece. The opioid agonist therapy is another piece. But then there is a a population of people who, being sober, isn't going to erase those harms. And they're not able to talk about that trauma and those harms. And so it's a slower process. We cannot leave that population at risk of death. When there are strategies that can help them stay alive. And so a safe supply of opioids is one strategy that helps to ensure people have the right to life. But others, like I said, we are talking about earlier, having safe drug use equipment, sterile equipment to prevent um, bloodborne, uh, diseases and infections, heart infections, infections that go to the brain can take somebody's life. And those infections can occur through reusing needles, using needles that they think is clean when they run them under water to wash them. Water carries bacteria and does not sterilize the needle. And so if you use a needle that you've already used before, or you've washed it with water thinking that's going to sterilize it, it may be carrying bacteria and can lead to blood-borne infections. Those infections can lead to death. So supervised injection sites where you're controlling um, in a safe environment the access to needles, access to pipes for smoking drugs, access to support for other health-related needs, are all important harm reduction strategies. But the most important harm reduction strategy that we can do at the family and community level is have conversations that facilitate compassion and understanding for people who use drugs, for the harms that are created for family and community related to drug use, rather than stay in our anger and our frustration for the harms that family and communities experience because of drug use. Anger and frustration will not facilitate community and family wellness. It will not facilitate healing unless we address the anger and frustration and move from that place to a place of compassion where we're investing in wellness for the whole of the community. Harm reduction measures are supported through those conversations. Addressing it at the community level serves the individual, serves the family, and serves the whole of the community.
1: So I know you, you talk about this to a lot of groups, not only across Canada, but across Turtle Island, around the world. At the end of the day, in the middle of this crisis, in the middle of what we know is happening still in our communities, considering all that you've shared with us today, at the end of the day, what brings you hope?
0: I have hope. My hope is based on the belief that the creator ensured, the great spirit ensured that whatever was needed and would be needed for a good life, minobimatsuin, was placed in the spirit realm in the very beginning. So what that means is, and this is from our evidence base, which is our creation story, our teachings about creation, The Great Spirit ensured a good life forever and all time. And what that means is for every generation of people on this earth, there are ways to seek the Spirit's help to understand what the answer is for the current life that we're living. So, for example, when the earth was first populated, we didn't have a pipe, but In our history as a people on this earth, the pipe came to us at a certain time when we needed something, and the pipe was given to the people to help us facilitate our connection to the spirit. The sweat lodge ceremony was not on this earth. We didn't practice it at the very beginning of time, but it too came at a time when We were looking for answers to life about how to balance our life. And so the SWAT Lodge came to be. We know that our knowledge of traditional medicines, and when we talk about traditional medicines, we're talking about our relationship with the earth, the plants, what they're used for, when to pick them, how to store them, how to mix them, what ways we administer those medicines. That knowledge is present amongst our people. Our ceremonies are present amongst our people. Our languages are present amongst our people. All of those are medicines. And now we're in a time where First Nations people are having conversations about the importance of those medicines and many more. How do we make them a part of our formal programs and policies in our communities? We haven't fully embraced that yet, but we're having conversation. And the First Nations Mental Wellness Continuum Framework promotes culture as the foundation. And so we're understanding how we apply our knowledge, how we apply our cultural practices and medicine to every aspect of our health. That gives me hope that those conversations will feed our solutions, will open up our thinking and help us to discover what we have within our own culture to ensure a good life for all. That doesn't mean that we have to leave out or reject conventional ways of healing and wellness, opioid agonist therapy, for example, a safe supply of opioids, needle exchange. Those are not things that we discovered are embedded in our cultural teachings. Those are tools that can be helpful to ensure First Nations' right to life, First Nations' right to health.
1: Anishik, thank you for this, Carol. Miigwech, Anishik. And that's it for this episode of Mino We hope you enjoyed it. Please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or where you listen so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit our website at ThunderbirdPF.org. And be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for ThunderbirdPF. Thanks again, Anishik, for listening. Until next time, I'm Sherry Huff.